Welcome back to the Admissions Uncovered podcast. It's the college admissions podcast for the students, by the students. Today, I have a special guest. His name is Sean. Uh, and I met Sean again through the Reddit r slash applying to college subreddit. Really cool place. Been plugging it basically every single episode for the past month or so. So you know I really like it. And I met some really cool people through it. Today, I think we wanted to talk about a really interesting thread that happened on the r slash applying to college subreddit. There was this verified admissions officer named William the Reader, someone who the mods at, at the Reddit place had, had verified was a former admissions officer at um, a U.S. News Top 5 school and, and someone who worked in their alma mater's admissions office, now also is an admissions consultant. Uh, answered a lot of questions that people on the Reddit r slash applying to college separate had about college admissions and, and how an admissions officers worked. And there were some really kind of controversial things he said that caused a lot of attention and a lot of anger from some people. Um, some of it justified, some of it probably self-interested, but um, I'm so excited to go through it because I, I hadn't noticed this post, and so Sean brought it up to me, and when I was reading over it, it was really interesting. So, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Great. Well, why don't you introduce yourselves to, to the listeners? Right, so um, I'm, a, I'm a rising high school senior, technically. Uh, but I skipped the grade because my school thought it wise to put me ahead because I was ahead in credits and I had already taken my SATs. But I, uh, I reside in the most competitive state for college admissions. I'm trying my hand this college admission cycle. You know, if I fail, I can try again since I did skip a grade. So I'm really interested about the college admissions process now. So by the time I apply, you know, I can definitely get in where I want. For sure. It's really cool to have, I guess, like two chances like you have. So even if you don't do well the first time, you can figure it out for the second time. That's really awesome. Yeah, uh, it's definitely really convenient, I think. Um, but, you know, for the first round, I can afford to be, you know, a lot more selective about where I want to go. Because I know, you know, I have that second chance. So I'm not really like wasting my time on safeties. And I can really plug a lot of time into, you know, essays, that sort of stuff. Exactly, exactly. And also you have a year's worth of information and, and experiences to, to add on if you do choose to do it a second time. And so now you have the information from this William the Reader uh, thread, which I found just kind of, the things he said just kind of crazy. Um, not crazy in the sense that I just like can't believe it and think he's lying, but... Crazy in the sense that they're true, but, but to have someone to kind of like say it and to have someone who is verified as an admissions officer say it, I think is really incredible. So, you know, you, I think, know this thread a bit better than I do. I was just taking a scan over it, but I think you went really in-depth in it um, and, and saw some threads that kind of popped off of it. So the first thing we, we talked about before the show was his argument about boarding schools. He had a really interesting example about Andover, and to me his argument seemed to be that people coming from really expensive brand name high school boarding schools like Andover and Exeter are actually able to get into top tier schools a lot easier than applicants who go to public schools, even if, even if they're really good public schools. Um, and he bases this off of average test scores. He says the average test scores coming out 
of these boarding schools tend to be lower, despite the fact that these schools like Andover and Exeter send like 20 people a year to these top Ivy League schools. Right. So it's it's definitely interesting in a fact, especially because, you know, since he is a top five admissions officer, he comes from likely an Ivy League school. And what he's basically saying is Ivy League's 10 to 15 percent of their class are solely from certain boarding schools in each state. So what this means is if you're, you know, a rural high schooler in, say, Alabama and you uh you do you go to intel you go to icef you become an icef finalist um you do all these great things you help your community out but the problem is uh say you know for a school like uh yale or harvard or where um, the admissions officer is working if they've already met their quota from that school's private schools um then they just can't take you because um, at the lengths he describes it there is a sort of uh, amount of students they have to take or they can take from Alabama and private schools are on the top of that priority list. But as a rural high schooler in Alabama, you're basically second rate, right? So if there aren't enough admittees from that private school, then, you know, you can be considered. But at this rate, you know, unless you have an extraordinary story that, you know, gives uh, something like a one on a Harvard essay rating, then you're not going to get in. That's just a simple fact. Yeah, and I think it's really, I mean, obviously it's really awful, and obviously it's really unfair. And, but, but I think, you know, that's the obvious level of it. I, I think one question I have in my mind is, is why they do that. And, and I think an, ex, an explanation that's more innocent for why there's kind of geographic quotas, maybe not quotas, but kind of like general ranges they want from certain states is because I think geographic diversity really matters. Like it really does matter that you have kids from a bunch of different states because the culture in, you know, where you're from, Sean, in California is so much different than than the culture uh, that I grew up in, in Texas. Like California and Texas are not just different states in the United States. There's like different politics there, obviously, different attitudes. Texas is probably more religious in a lot of places, particularly in the suburbs. Um, so, you know, like, I think there's an argument for geographic diversity. Not to say that privileging pri private school kids within that geographic diversity is a good thing. I don't think it is. Right. So I actually think a lot of high schoolers on A2C and, you know, r slash chance me and a lot of online forums, I think they get a lot of things wrong about geographic diversity. So you might have, you know, somebody from Montana or the upper Midwest from very rural states. Um, just because they're from a rural state and they go to a public school um, doesn't mean that geographic diversity favors them. So like I said before, um, what William the Reader has basically said is that, you know, if you go to an underrepresented state like Georgia or Montana, they're going to be recruiting from these select uh, private schools. So, you know, to put it simply, a kid with a 1400 um, at a private school in Montana will be prioritized over a kid with a 1600 in a private uh, in a public school, discounting all other, you know, extracurriculars, essays, that sort of stuff. And so well, that's why. Well, I mean, you know, it certainly helps to be the kid with the 1600 from Montana versus the kid with the 1600 from 
like Dallas or whatever big, 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 big state um, that that you might be from. Of course, that's true. Um, but the thing pe- most people get wrong is that the geographic diversity factor doesn't help nearly as much for public school applicants as they think. But for private school applicants, you know, in underrepresented states, that's a massive boost to their application. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, I, I think I should preface this to say, obviously, this is one admissions officer. I'm, I'm fairly confident in the fact that they are actually a verified admissions officer just because, like, this is a big subreddit. There's a lot of mods. I, I don't think they would mess this one up. Um, they, the mods at ATC tend to be fairly good about these types of things. But it is also just one admissions officer from, from one admissions office. Um, and he's no longer an admissions officer, so like there could be a time thing. There could be like um, there could be a time thing. There could be uh, another thing. Just like it's just that school. Um, but but just to preface it with that, although I will say like it does make sense why these things happen, right? So like, what do you think, Sean? Your explanation would be for the privileging of, of private schools. So obviously, it has to do a lot with how these universities stay in touch. Um, with their alumni, uh, you know, because they are important for donations to the university. But the main reason why, you know, it happens, and this is completely my opinion, but, um, you know, universities that are prestigious, that are sort of like the Ivy League school, um, Harvard has a massive endowment, if you look at the numbers. And the reason why they can do this is because of their alumni network. Now, what does the alumni network get back in return from Harvard then? Um, the only thing really Harvard can give them back because, you know, the alumni are giving donations is, of course, legacy preference. And, you know, uh, throughout like history in prestigious schools, especially top 20 schools, uh, legacy admissions, they've been very controversial. Only now we're overlooking them in favor of something like affirmative action. But legacy admissions overall, you know, in the early 1900s, you see that... Uh, there was an attempt to repeal this type of stuff in Harvard and it was rejected uh, because Harvard would lose all of its funding. So that's why I think they recruit a lot from these target private schools all over the country. Uh, It's because a lot of their alumni network is focused here for one and for two. These are feeder schools, which level of academics that, um, you know, universities like Harvard or other T20s can trust. Yeah. And it's, and you know, to build off of that, I think it's all about the relationships for these schools. Like, I think the reason why an Exeter and, a, and, a, and an Andover is able to get so many kids into the top, top 20s and the big name schools is because the admissions officer at the top 20 knows the guidance counselor at the boarding school. They're well connected. Maybe they're a former admissions officer. They're chummy. Um, and so there's a lot of like relationship building that you just don't get if you go to a, a standard public school. Even if you go to a really good public school, it's just harder to make that happen. Guidance counselors at public schools are focused on you know, schedules and, and bullying and that type of just like standard public school stuff uh, or just standard school administration stuff. Whereas, you know, at maybe a smaller school or definitely a private school boarding schools, more resources mean more attention can be put to college admissions and making those sorts of relationships. So, so the type of story of inequality, I think, really, really builds up when, when you think about it. 
Although to, to kind of like push back on this narrative, and, and this is something that you see in, in the subreddit too, if you actually want to read, and this is something I should have said earlier, but if you actually want to read this thread, you should go to admissionsuncovered.com and bit.ly slash aupod59. Uh, you can go to that website, go to our episode website, go to the show notes and, and the link to it will be there. It'll also be in the podcast description just because I think it's really important to do your own reading because I think there are different interpretations to, to what William said. Um, but, but back to, I think the pushback that he got was that, and I disagree with this, I'll say it up front, but the pushback he got was that Andover, Exeter, they're not just fancy boarding schools. They're also really good schools that are really rigorous. Um, and, and to some extent, I feel like that's true. I know someone from Andover, he's a really good friend and the type of coursework that they did is just far beyond the type of coursework I did in public school. Um, and it's... The, the result of inequality, but it's also just the case that they did more advanced work than I did. And, uh, you know, William the Reader, he, uh, he deals with a lot of this, right? And there's the common argument that, you know, these schools are a lot of feeder schools because uh, all of their academics are based on, you know, higher standards, which is why they get sort of a higher education in high school. They get pressured to, uh, you know, uh, go to more international nonprofits, do a lot of international Olympiads, a lot of high-level activities. What Willem the Reader does to refute this argument is that the top half of Exeter and Andover, and I quote directly from him, is smarter than all of those 1600 SAT uh, national award-winning public high school kids. And really, there are more you know public high school valedictorians that are actually better than a lot of these private school admits. But the problem is, you know, we obviously can't take all of the valedictorians in a certain state from public schools, which is, and private schools, again, have the added incentive of um, alumni donations. So I, I think that, you know, donations angle is an interesting piece to it. I, I'd be curious to like dig more into the stuff coming out of the Harvard lawsuit, because there is a little bit of stuff out there, I think, whether there's coordination between the admissions office and and, and the fundraising wing of, of the school. I will say though, that I, I think to carry on with the pushback against the argument is that like, you know, he does, he does like obviously agree that Andover, Exeter, these types of schools, they're, they're like really difficult schools to go to, but it's hard for me to think about how to make that comparison just because they're coming from two completely different places. And so I can't really think about how an admissions officer make that make might make that decision. You know, I think maybe on a pure absolute value, people at Exeter and Andover might know more and, and be, because no more advanced things just because they were given those opportunities. But I think if you take things from a different angle, like a, like a growth perspective or a growth angle, you'll see that like the public school kid might have started with less. Um, and ended with less, but the absolute magnitude of that change is way higher than someone who who went to Andover and started higher and maybe ended up higher than the public school kid, but the absolute change, the change between start and end in high school isn't as, as significant. Right. I actually completely agree with that statement. You know, it's, uh, it's the reason why uh, low-income kids you know, admissions officers say low-income kids are not disadvantaged in, like, sort of extracurriculars if they were forced to, 
you know, care for their grandmother or perform home chore duties. It's because they had to start from basically nothing and get to a point where they could be at the same point as a regular high school student. So I do agree that there is a higher change of magnitude, which is, I would like to think it's recognized in the process. I mean, to like, kind of like wrap this, this section up, to me it just like seems very, very true that people at boarding schools have an advantage in, in the college admissions process. Um, and even if you're not trustful of William the Reader's claim is about average SAT scores being lower for admitted applicants coming out of Andover, Exeter, and the type of boarding schools, I think it is just incredibly obvious that the opportunities at a boarding school are so much more, which means it's just there's just so many advantages and, and that the bar is also set lower because there is like a cachet associated with with the name of the school, name of the boarding school. And, you know, frankly, that's the reason why I really pursued the Ivy League and, and the top 20 and that type of school is because there is a cachet with the school that even if I don't, even if I'm like absolute value worse than someone who came from somewhere, you know, less brand name, the brand name is still going to help me, which is, I think, unfair and and not justified, but is like an as like a thing in the world make makes sense and makes sense why you might want to pursue the brand name. Exactly, because Andover they promote this type of name recognition, and like a lot of AOs or admission officers say, only fifteen minutes or so to review your application. So there's really not a lot of you know googling they can do to look at your high school in particular. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. Like, if you're moving quickly and you see Andover, you're like, okay, we'll pass this along and we'll make a cut later on. I think there's definitely just, like, less of a... The, the name of that school gives you a cachet that, that like, bounces you through the first couple of rounds of, of decision-making fairly easily. Um, so, obviously wrong, obviously bad. Um, but I think read more onto it because I think there's some interesting discussions between William the Reader and, and people who actually went to, to boarding schools. Now, what's, what's the, I think the next thing we wanted to talk about is, is his claims about you know, how low-income students are treated in the process. Um, so so what, what did he say about that, Sean? So low-income students, you know, everybody, I'm pretty sure everybody who's ever paid to college admissions has always heard that story of that underrepresented racial minority poor student who got a full ride to say four or so ivies and it's a it's a really groundbreaking uh basically news report that makes you think oh the ivy leagues are fair the ivy leagues they will give full merit aid to low-income students and it really enforces this idea of meritocracy even for low-income students but what william the reader says and he he comes from a top five university that likely gets pinned as a lot of these, a target of a lot of these thoughts about meritocracy. What he basically says is the university's only 1% to 5% of their students are actually of this type of low income caliber where, they're, where they actually get full rides in the first place. Which means that uh, universities, they take a look at your low income status. If you're international, of course, then that's definitely a major in your rejection letter if you can't afford to pay, you know, full tuition. Uh, but even for a lot of schools, like prestigious schools, if you're a low-income student and you're a unique racial minority, you're not necessarily going to get accepted. And the thing I said before about the higher magnitude of change from zero to a normal high school student for low-income students, 
it's a lot harder to recognize in the admission admissions process because as i said before there's only 15 minutes or so it, it varies a lot across colleges but it's obviously not enough time to assess you as a well-being person from your essays and extracurriculars for sure now one thing i will say is that i, I don't know if it's true that low-income students only make up like a single digit percentage of the population there's no question in my head that it's hard. It's so much harder if you're low income to get into a high, like a high tier school, right? Like test prep costs money, admissions counselors cost money, things cost money, college trips cost money, extracurricular activities cost money. The school you're zoned into, if you're in a low income neighborhood, might not be the best. Teachers might not understand what it means to write a rec letter. They might be used to people going to community college. All these other like class-based arguments why it's hard to get into a college totally makes sense to me. Although what I will push back on is is I, I, I think we gotta give schools a little bit more credit. If you look at the stats on, on profile, I'm, I'm like Googling it here and I wonder if Columbia has like put this up. I'm trying to find it, but like demographic wise, um, there's certainly diversity when it comes to race. I'm trying to see if there's numbers when it comes to, to like actual school. 18% of students receive Pell Grants and that's obviously an indicator of, of family income. Right, and uh, uh, just to further on what William the Reader says, that schools do release a lot of statistics about low-income students. Uh, there certainly is diversity to a certain point, but not everybody who's admitted as a unique racial minority, of course, is anywhere near low-income. Um, but what he does say is that schools like Harvard or the prestigious university in question, he says they post a nearly 100% statistic saying that 100% of our students meet get enough aid to cover their um, income level cost. But the problem is the university has so little low-income students that need a substantial amount of money in the first place that the 100% statistic doesn't really matter in that sense. Well, I mean, I, th I think it certainly does matter, right? Because the low-income kid who does make it in is going to be, you know, in, in pretty good shape. Now, what 100% means, I think, differs, and, and who qualifies as low-income in colleges' views really differs, right? So a lot of people have high assets but hit a hard patch, and, like, there's not really many liquid assets, and, like, the way financial aid offices calculate that is a little bit messed up in the sense that they count many assets that are like illiquid like homes and even like investments which you might not want to cash out immediately to pay for college because you would be selling into a loss uh, for example like selling stocks you can do to pay for college but like if you do you might be in a worse off financial like there's there's all these reasons why maybe a financial aid office isn't the best way to do it. but i do give credit that if you are low income like you will be in a better shape at one of these top tier private schools than you might be at like a public school, for instance. The problem is that, you know, people say going to an Ivy will actually be better than going to your state university as a low income student, because you will get obviously 100% of your need demonstrated aid fulfilled if you do get accepted. But the problem is, as I said before, this isn't really accessible to a lot of low income students because I would say overly an overly proportionate amount of them are disadvantaged despite what people say about admission officers understanding that you have home duties and chores to fulfill. Well, you know, I don't think it's admissions officers' fault um, in the sense that, like, obviously the time limit 
But and I, and I obviously don't think it's the low-income student's fault. I think it's the fault of like a really messed up system that doesn't give low-income students resources to write solid essays. Right? It might be the case that a low-income student doesn't do extracurricular activities because they have home things and chores and have to work a job. But if the low-income student doesn't tell admissions officers that because they don't feel like that's important, that's not on admissions officers and it's not on the students. It's on the teachers at the school and kind of the system for not telling that student. And, and even if the student does tell them, but tells it in kind of like a clunky way, the essay isn't written well, it's, it's written in a traditional five paragraph way rather than kind of a narrative or story structure that um, admissions officers might appreciate more, it's not on the admissions officer, right? They, they don't have control of the student's essay. It's not on the student's fault. College essays are wacky things. It's on the fault of the schools for not providing those resources. So I, I am one person who, who complains a lot about admissions, certainly complains a lot about admissions officers, but like to take a step back, it's, it's really not like individual's fault. I feel like it's just the fault of not providing enough resources to low-income people. I think another thing we also wanted to talk about is um, Asian American students and college admissions, uh, because out of all of the, you know, URMs, unique racial minorities in the college admissions process, a lot of people actually say, and the masses, the most of the people in college admissions actually agree that Asian Americans are disadvantaged in the process. Obviously, this is controversial, controversial, you know, following the Harvard case, um, allegations of what affirmative action actually does all that sort of stuff. But Willem the Reader himself, so he responds to a comment on his post basically asking, uh, what do Asian students do to uh, distinguish themselves to go up and beyond to be competitive compared to the, their other Asian American peers? The, uh, the advice he gives is a bit mixed, I would say, but it's overall very revealing. And I'll, um, I'll quote his number one actually reason. Uh, and I quote, the number one thing you can do is transfer high schools to one of the best in the country and figure out which ones feed into top schools. And he says, ironically, that's the best and most effective thing you can do by far. He goes on to say in a second point, you know, referring to like extracurriculars, uh, doing traditional math and science ECs, still maintain high test scores. I think like intuitively that second thing about stereotypical extracurricular activities makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the thing is though, and, and, to, and to me like this shouldn't be as a comment on affirmative action. I think affirmative action makes total sense. If you believe that there's racial inequality, then there have to be, has to be ways of rectifying that, i.e. affirmative action. But just like on that particular point of like admissions officers being, I'm tired of Asian applicants who play piano and like math. Well, like, why aren't you tired of white preppy folk who play lacrosse or football? What, what happened to that? Right? Why, why did you get tired of Asian Americans who like math? They come across a lot of Asian American uh, applicants who do play a lot of instruments compared to white prep school kids. And the white prep school kids, they have to admit a fair majority of them anyways. I think there is, is actually more Asian applicants who do play an instrument or something like that over, you know, white students who play a certain uh, sport like lacrosse or basketball. Well, yeah, like, I, I think the story remains the same. Like, we could change up the activities, but why has it been, like, the stereotypically Asian ones have been singled out as bad? Whereas there's been very little about how, like, cultural things that you would describe to white people are not deemed as, like, boring 
and things like that. And you're like, why is that the case? And, and to me, it's just racism. Okay, culturally, there's pressures in Asian communities to go into STEM, in, into doing like a traditional path like piano or violin or whatever. So what? Like, isn't, isn't that the argument of like taking into account race to say that like culture matters and that we shouldn't like disadvantage people based on their culture? To me, there's like, and again, like this should not be a comment to say like, boohoo Asian people, if you're Asian, you should like, you're totally done for. But it is to say like, there's a certain element of this to me that, that feels wrong. I'm an Asian American too. I come from the most competitive state uh, with the most Asians. So I definitely do see a lot of this. But the thing that really stuck out to me was um, actually the third point he says, and I, I quote, we accept a lot of math heavy and research heavy Asian applicants, but usually only if they've done really well on a state and national level, which uh, he refers to as, you know, published research, uh, international science fair, um, USA math Olympiad. He goes on to say, you know, if you're an Asian applicant and you're applying for a STEM major that relies heavily on math or sciences, if you do not have these national accomplishments, then you are guaranteed near rejection in that sense, compared to other ethnicities in that sense. Which means that one of two things, either there is a giant influx of Asians in that category that it produces competition among us, dumb, or it means something else entirely. Yeah, you know, I and 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 to me that's just saying that if you want to be if you're going to apply as an Asian American student who who is like interested in STEM and, and plays the violin or the clarinet, if you don't get in, part of you and part of me is going to say there is something that is just like there's like a cultural bias against that stereotypical image. And I think that's true to a certain extent. I think it's also true to a certain extent that if you applied as that stereotypical applicant and you didn't do the stereotypes well enough, then of course you're not going to get in. Like, it's tough to get into top tier schools. Everybody needs to do really amazing. Now, it's easy for some people. It's easier for boarding school people. It's easier for rich people. Absolutely. But if you try to apply as an Asian American math person and all you've done in that regard is like, do a local competition, and you say you're really interested in scientific research, but all you've done is a science fair project in the third grade. Of course you're not gonna get it. And and that and you're not gonna get it not because you're Asian, not because there's bias against like Asian STEM people, but because you didn't you weren't a good Asian STEM person. Like you didn't do STEM well, you didn't do the steps that you would expect as a STEM applicant. Right? So like I I, I don't I, I wanna recognize the role of race and and biases against Asians in college admissions and, and, and in American society writ large, but I also don't want to overplay it. Like, at some point, if you don't execute well on your plan, of course you're not going to get it. He, he says you are compared to your same demographic, of course, and this is why, you know, this sort of a pre-existent requirement sort of exists in some admissions officers' minds. It's that if you are, you know, Asian American and you are applying for maths and sciences, unless you have a very unique angle or like mind-breaking essays, then you're you're going to be severely disadvantaged if you don't have these awards. Now, meanwhile, you're being compared to your same ethnicity, of course, not across you know the whole range of students. You know, part of that story is just like very similar to the story of any old applicant, which is that if you want to do something, you got to do it well, particularly for top twenties. Period.
Right. And uh, I think it holds true for Asians mostly. Now, the next thing he says in response to this post, well, it actually says a few more things, but this, this can be all chalked up to one. Uh, there is a huge stereotype in the Asian community. A lot of Asian Americans applying to um, universities notice. Asian students, they tend to have the top top grades, top stat statistics, top SAT scores. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, they emphasize this. And a, a lot of Asian American applicants, if they haven't seen advice on, say, you know, applying to college on Reddit or the Chance Me subreddit on Reddit, if they haven't seen advice there, they would focus on getting, you know, a 1600 on the SAT after receiving a 1580 or as close as they can get to all A's fearing, what if I get a B in a certain AP class, right? And what he says is, uh, you know, Asian American applicants overly uh, fixate themselves on this, which is why, you know, there is tougher competition in reference to statistics, uh, like the SAT scores and the affirmative action statistic that was released a few months ago saying, I think it was Asian Americans have to score a certain amount of absurd points higher than a certain ethnicity's counterpart. Yeah, and I think part of that has to do with just like, I'll say Asian, but but like I'm thinking East Asian, India, um, in particular, because like they're the way college admissions work there is that it isn't holistic. There is no, I mean, there there's an essay, but like it, it's not really a foofy doofy personal essay where you're telling a story. It's like you take the Gaokao or in China or like some big standardized test, and and that what is that that is what determines the school you go to it's it's just like part of like a cultural attitude i think in the asian american community that just like does not happen to be true here in america what that means is that people are pushed to focus on tests at the expense of things that might actually matter more in like this american college admissions context overall he says don't conform to the stereotype don't focus too much on testing scores and definitely don't sacrifice you know going to competitions, doing extracurricular activities, volunteer work, just for that, you know, additional A in your A-push class. Just lastly, on a side note, and I find this actually really interesting, he says, uh, personal preference, he says, take the ACT over the SAT because it's easier to score higher on the ACT. I mean, I got a, I got a 36 on the ACT and I got like a 15, 16 on the SAT. So like, clearly for me, I did better on the ACT. So like maybe there's a little bit of bias here, um, but to me that's probably not the case. Um, it just like depends on who you are and, and what your strengths are. Like for the ACT, timing is a lot of a bigger deal. So if you're able to read quicker, ACT is your friend. And if you're reading slower, then SAT is your friend. And if you're better at math, then the ACT is friend is your friend because the ACT math section is slightly harder. Uh, but if you're better at doing more bigger picture reading thinking, then then the SAT is your friend. So. I think William the Reader's wrong on this, and I'm fairly confident he's wrong because, like, I just took these tests, you take these tests. One thing he does have to say, and lastly, the thing we wanted to talk about also is the mood of admissions officers, because this is something, you know, only he and other admissions officers knows. Uh, basically, you know, how, what are other admissions officers like? What are their credentials? What are they looking for? And this is something only really he is qualified to answer. And so what he says on this issue, a lot of admissions officers, a lot of them come from the bottom 20-30% of their graduating class at a prestigious college. Because otherwise, you know, it, why would you be working as an AO when you could be, you know, like working in a seven-figure banking job or something? So he makes this good point. 
about a lot of his colleagues, uh, admissions officers who have entered university. He says a lot of his colleagues uh, entered university on the low side, uh, say they entered with 25th percentile SIT, SAT, ACTs into the prestigious universities they were going to, and they, you know, obviously came out at the lower end also, which means as admissions officers, they do not recognize a lot of higher scores, like higher SATs and higher GPAs, as strongly as they would if there were uh, an applicant who was stronger when they were applying to the prestigious college. I think, you know, like, I preface this again by saying this is kind of like a empirical account of how admissions offices are shaped up, but there's this is not like public data and it's not like publicly released data for sure. And the reason why I'm per, like a little bit more skeptical of this information than the other information that he's provided is because kind of the other claims he, he's making is consistent with I think my political worldview and my like structural worldview of, of how like class and race is involved with, with regular things. Whereas this is purely like an empirical factual question. Do admissions officers come from the top of the class or the bottom of the class? And I could definitely see like smart people going into admissions. Like I find, I think, I think I'm fairly smart, all right? Um, but you know, like I, I, I genuinely think admissions is just very interesting. I am out of this, right? Like I, I personally am not applying to college anytime soon. I will probably not apply for college again, not even grad school if, if the plan goes. Um, but I genuinely still think that like undergrad college admissions is just like so interesting is so important. So I don't know. I feel like I want to temper this one particularly by saying it's like his experience because there's no way there's like, there's, there's no way like the admissions officer is compiling this data even internally and sending it internally because no office is going to be like, yeah, we're made up of the worst performers at our respective schools. Right. Right. And I definitely think, you know, it is possibly a his university only thing. So I'm actually curious. So would you actually go into an admissions officer role, you know, at the end of college? Mm, I don't know if I would want to work for, for the college, especially as an entry level role. I, I feel like I would have too many opinions on how the system should work. Um, and I could never just like do the process that the director of admissions probably wants me to do. I think my vision for admissions is just like way too radically different than, than a lot of theirs. Um, and maybe just like the constraints of possibilities, like resource allocation and things like that. Um, I definitely think I would work in the private sector as an, as an admissions counselor. Um, I also think there's just like a lot of opportunity in admissions not related to like direct services provided about counseling. Like, there's no tech in college admissions. It kind of like infuriates me. There are websites that help you find scholarships. Like Scholarly is an app that is trying to innovating, innovate here, but there's like not one hub that I can go to to like track my college applications on my phone. The, the common app app on the phone is really, really bad. There's not one place I can go to, to, to think through college visits and like to, to get information about college visits from a student point of view. Um, I think that there's a lot of innovation to be had in essay editing. Like we've come, come so far when it comes to things like 
grammar checking with Grammarly, like there's machine learning and national language processing, like surely there's a way that we can think about using technology to, to make essay editing cheaper by either automating some of the process or all of the process. So I, I, I don't know if I'd, I'd be an admissions counselor, but this kind of like broader space is something that definitely interests me. Right, so I do think this lends, you know, to his overall perspective. Because, as you mentioned before, there are definitely smart people in the top 10% of their class um, who are willing to go into admissions. But I do think what he means is a lot of the AOs are overly represented by the bottom half of the class. Yeah, you know, like, I, I still have the same pushback, which is that this seems, this, this seems like a... Like a like a bridge too far. Like everything else, kind of like fits fits and makes sense. This seems like it's a little bit too much of a generalization. Like really, really, I don't know. Uh, in terms of what admissions officers thinks of essays, uh, what he basically says lastly is, uh, quote, eighty five percent of all essays are one mediocrely written and two boring. Which, you know, I do agree on that sense, being a rising high school senior. I feel like, you know, I'm trying to write a Charles Dickens novel as a factory worker. And it, it's, it's really not going as well as I'd hoped at the moment. <laughs> uh, about, you know, 15% of those essays are going to be what catches an admissions officer's attention. And then he confirms, you know, what a lot of admissions officers says, which is basically... Uh, those 15% of, of essays are the reasons why we can go up and pitch for you for your um, acceptance into a university. He also goes on and adds as a, as a side note, basically, he recounts an empirical experience, basically when a girl had an essay which was a tear-jerking experience. That applicant was ultimately denied to a private school applicant because they hadn't filled a private school quota, which I think is a bit disappointing. I mean, I would I would like caution on quota and particularly quota about private schools like I don't know if it's like that strict of a number like maybe a general preference intuitively makes sense to me but as far as like a number number seems a little bit like mm, to me I don't know right and yeah it's probably not a defined quota as I'm you know as I might be making out to be I think it's more of like an unsaid rule in college admissions actually for admission officers. I feel like, like that like totally makes sense, right? We talked about how like there's some cachet about the name that is just like, there's a trust value that the name has that it may or may not deserve. Um, as, as far as like essays, like I, I talk about this a lot, but like, and this is another reason why under-resourced low-income kids or rural kids are at a huge disadvantage because college essays are not like the essays we were taught to write for school. They are not like an AP language essay. They're not like a DBQ they're, they're for, for like AP World or AP US History. They're, they're stories. And honestly, I haven't written like a creative writing thing or a personal narrative or a story um, if I, since like the seventh grade when I was a high school senior. Exactly. No, there's not. <laughs> exactly. There's no like... There's no AP creative writing, <laughs> even though we wish there were. And so, yeah, it's just like, it's like, you know, yes, like five paragraph essays are boring, but it's also what most of the people applying are taught. And if, and if they're not told anything different, of course, they're just going to do what 
every single English teacher and history teacher has told them to do for the past four years. A lot of students do write these sort of block essays, although I do know a lot of high school seniors by this time, they recognize the need to um, write uh, actual creative essays. And then they complain a lot, which I do see a lot of among a lot of seniors, you know. I was never taught how to write actual creative stories. Why didn't they teach us useful things, right? I see this a lot on you know, Reddit, of course, applying to college. Reddit's just a cesspool of like interesting insights among a lot of complaints. Most of those complaints are valid, but it's just like, all right, dudes, I got it. Especially this uh, William the Reader's analysis. It was definitely interesting today to go ahead and look at everything oh, yeah. he said. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of there, there's a lot of like a uh, little bit overly sensitive private school kids who are like, "What are you talking about? I earned this. I totally earned this." Um, who maybe should think a little bit about themselves before they just go out and like, "I'm being wronged by random person on Reddit." <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually amusing. It really is. Rich private school kids from Andover and Exeter who are in a top twenty school do not get to complain. Yeah. Coming, coming from especially high senior in California, who is already disadvantaged in the process, yeah, definitely. You, you do not yeah. get to complain. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Well, I think that about wraps it up about William the Reader stuff. Um, thank you so much, Sean, for coming on the podcast. This is actually incredibly interesting. Yep. Of course. Well, you know what? Also, thank you to you, the listener, for listening to this week's episode of the Admissions Uncovered podcast. It's been a lot of fun. We're going to keep doing these kind of like weekly episodes. So head over to our website, admissionsuncovered.com, and subscribe so you can get every single episode right when it comes out. Uh, So pull out your phone, go to the browser, and search admissionsuncovered.com and scroll to the very, very bottom on your phone. And there's going to be two blue buttons. One of them says subscribe via Apple. The other one says subscribe via Android. If you're an Apple user, click subscribe via Apple. If you're an Android user, click subscribe via Android, obviously. Uh, And then there'll be instructions on what to do. If you're on Android, you might have to download a podcast app. But head over there and subscribe so you don't miss an episode at admissionsuncovered.com. All right, do that and you'll make me very, very happy. And you'll make sure you never miss an episode. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, and I'll see you next week.